Carroll. Dr. Carroll is an Irish doctor, graduate of medicine from University College Dublin, where he received his master's degree in public health medicine, previously the chairman of the board of ARC Cancer Support Centres and a member of the Royal Society of Tropical Medicine, among other accreditations. Thank you for taking the time, doctor. My pleasure. Glad to be here. That's great. Well, you, I know you've been an extremely busy man as of late, and we can get into the reasons why for that. But um, we seem to be trashing through a bit of stormy water here in Ireland at the moment. There's bills being proposed. People are take, taken to the streets. Property, fuel and food prices are all time high. Young people are sick. And yet on the radio, we still hear that calling the Corona-19 virus is still our greatest threat and it's rampant in our society. In your opinion, is the virus and its containment still our main focus or were there deeper issues regarding COVID and the vaccines beginning to surface lately? I don't think the virus is our chief focus. It should never have been. It was chief focus, certainly when NEFID or the Public Health Advisory Committee see be the de facto government of the country and when the real government to the elected government, that is, seemed to be mute and seemed to be ineffectual. I suppose those days have gone a little bit now. People have wised up to, I suppose, the way COVID was handled. I was talking to a politician quite recently in one of the government parties and he said to me that if they were to do it again, probably do it differently. But, you know, it's late to be saying that at this stage. COVID uh, is, is one of the things. I mean, the reality in this country, the vast majority of people technically now are not vaccinated simply because the, the vaccine according to manufacturers, and I'm just using the vaccine because the manufacturers describe it thus. I mean, I'd be aware that is a controversial term, but let's just use that word for a moment. I mean, they by their admission would say that the maximum benefit anybody gets out of it, their way of telling us is six months at maximum. So the vast majority of people have not had vaccine in the last six months. So therefore, technically, everybody's exactly the way they were before the vaccines became available. So in other words, from a body point of view and all of that, we're more or less vulnerable. The difficulty there, of course, is um, that um, we nothing has changed very much. It's never, ever a disease that was going to cause any major to the vast, vast majority of people. And in a very ingenuous way, we were never told whether people died because of COVID or with COVID. Two Irish coroners, both in Hill and in Kildare, did say over a year ago that crawled through their statistics and each had about 300 records where COVID was mentioned that something like 98% were people who were terminally ill with one type of disease or other and were unlucky enough, in the words of one of the callers, were unlucky enough at COVID as well. And I mean, it, 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 all diseases, I suppose, at the end of life, especially viral disease, tend to be, tend to the more vulnerable type of person. And at the very beginning, I mean, public health doctors myself were very much aware of that. And a plan was put in place, or a plan proposed rather, called the Great Barrington Declaration. And the Great Barrington is a city or a town in the East Coast of America. So the Great Barrington was a very simple one, protect the vulnerable and open up city. What we did was 
failed to protect a vulnerable and closed down society, which is the direct opposite of what the Harrington Declaration, which was signed by numerous eminent public health doctors and professors of public health medicine throughout the world to protect the vulnerable and up society. That advice was completely inverted in this country and we closed down society. And we fail to protect the elderly by discharging people from hospitals directly in nursing homes without any testing. And as far as I'm concerned, it was a criminal act and it ought to be thoroughly investigated by public inquiry. And I, I noticed as well that we, we seem to have been seeing a lot less fear um, in general public. People uh, who are once all for the vaccines and now holding off um, getting their latest booster. Mm. Um, why do you think that is? Well, people are using their common sense. They realise that there are two sides to the story. I mean, we were only getting one side of the story for a very, very long time. And that side of the story was the official story. There was a government point of view, but that point of view was driven by Neffet. Point of view was the only authorised point of view. There was no other point of view allowed point of view given. There was no other expression of opinion and if there was, it was shot down. The compliant press are subservient. They must have been in some way purchased. They were not in any way doing the job of good journalism which is to have a sense of curiosity, to have a sense of inquiry and to hold government to account. It's a bit like Pravda in Middle Europe, bad old days, where government and press were on the same Sheet. So people didn't have a choice. People had to depend upon filtered information, their own observations. And slowly but surely, people started talking to each other and realised they weren't the only ones thought like that. And now public are rising up, but not only regarding this, regarding a whole range of other things, because they now realise they have been betrayed by government. They've been betrayed by the media. They've been betrayed official Ireland if you can certainly they've been betrayed by the fake opposition parties and people are beginning to realize that choice was not did and does not exist new way forward has been sought and that happened when people talk together and think together and is now beginning to happen absolutely um, and I say as a doctor it must have been very painful watching um some of the advice been rolled out that was against even common sense, let alone the expertise of a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, I, I don't know Absolutely. if you And what was, yep, no, what was painful and what was very, very painful was the silence of my colleagues. And it's baffling. At least I thought of it baffling until I realised the very obvious that there's 21,000 doctors in Ireland. 21,000 doctors are least, if you like, by the Medical Council, who for the most part over the last couple of days have been doing a good job. Generally, they, they monitored fairly light hand. They let doctors get on with their business. If any doctor appeared before the courts on something unsavoury, they were strong off. It didn't happen very often. There were inquiry into the way doctors behaved. Perhaps uh, the guidance of the Medical Council was a little bit too light. And I've recently become aware cases where they seem to have a very, if you like, negative approach to genuine complaints by the general public on a small number of rogue doctors. But having said that, they, for the most part, let the ordinary, hardworking, 
boot doctor alone, if you like. But then all that changed with COVID. All that changed with COVID. And a people spoke outside with the official narrative. People like myself and a handful of other doctors for example, we were inquired into by the Medical Council. The Medical Council took, in effect, political point of view. The Medical Council is meant to be guided by the 1978 Medical Practitioners Act, the Good Act, and it helps police the profession. And the main thing is to take doctors out of the system who is a danger to the public. But they chosen to define a danger to the public as a, a doctor in keeping with government policy in keeping with NEFIT policy, which is outrageous because medical science is all about debate. Medical science is all about peer-reviewed articles, about differences of opinion and the eventual forming of a consensus. Not about politics. We're not a political body. We're a professional body who's only able to help people as best as we can. But that has been taken away from us because any doctor that spoke out of the official narrative ran risk of loss of livelihood because the Medical Council can suspend you. The Medical Council then deprive you of your livelihood. And already one doctor that has happened to a doctor already, and there's a number of doctors in the pipeline for that as well. And then when you think about it, members of the Medical Council have, have their, their, their uh, membership approved by the Minister of Health. All members of the Medical Council, of which there are 23, can be moved by the Minister of Health. They are political. Don't, you know, play things with me. They are a political body. They are not, not a genuine independent body representing the interests of the public. They're representatives of their, of their political patrons. So they are tainted and they're corrupt by that, as far as I am concerned. But they have controlled the narrative. That's what counts. So this is why a lot of them are calling for the Medical Council to be abolished, to be inquired into. And if it can be shown that that decision making was by vested interests, and we don't know that because none of them have ever declared our vested interests, I believe they should be criminally prosecuted. Absolutely. And I, I, um, I'm going to jump to a point as well to say, I'm sure you're aware that in the Dutch Parliament recently that a spokesperson for Pfizer said the COVID vaccines were never tested to stop transmission. And yet this narrative had spilled out to, to globally where people who were unfairly discriminated against, they were banished from their social activities, lost their jobs, they were fined. In some countries, they're arrested and put in containment camps, all based on that lie to stop transmission. But yes, the Irish right. media is not publicizing any of this. And when you bring it to the attention of some people, they're completely unaware of it. But surely this is a massive scandal of a proportion of times. I would think so. I suppose one could say the media can publish what they want, but that's not, that's not the way it ought to be. I mean, normally the media is meant to have capacity. The media is meant to hold government to account. I mean, the media, like all journalists, like all beings, may have a personal point of view, but that should not interfere with your profession. A competence, your your ability to work in a professional way. Um, it's remarkable that the media have one story. All the media are singing the same hymn sheet, and yet there are there are many many sort of things that are occurring and that are in the public domain that are not being reported in the media. And there's a lot of stuff that is being reported in the media as well, but it's all in direction only. It's all part of massaging a narrative along rather than being choice, rather than showing the, the diversity of opinion. For example, a very good example of that, I mean, you mentioned a good 
example, in the Dutch Parliament. Let me give you a very good example that happened in Ireland over the recent past. It, it includes the concept of ivermectin. Ivermectin is a well-known product. It's been undergoing the 1960s. Most farmer vets will be very, very familiar with it, as most doctors uh, as well. But it is it, many directors of public health medicine in other parts of the country have used it in other parts of the world, rather have used it prophylactically. In other words, to prevent people like health staff and vulnerable people getting COVID and also for treating COVID as well. Directorates of public health medicine in other countries had no difference in that. But in Ireland, we didn't. The doctor prescribed ivermectin to be in serious trouble. I know two doctors are under inquiry, more or less, because. But the point is that if ivermectin was considered to be uh, a treatment that valid, then you couldn't possibly use vaccines which are emergency usage due to alternative. So they would have to withdraw. So we can see immediately the financial, the political pressure that is put on doctors not to prescribe ivermectin, although in other parts of the world, but usually for the most part, the less, I suppose, uh, economically abundant parts of the world, ivermectin was used very, very and I mean, a group of scientists in Great Britain, called the BIRD Group, B-I-R-D, it stands for British Ivermectin Research Group, or Research Development Group, the BIRD Group, headed up by Dr. Tess Lowry, they had an active email exchange with the advisors Tinford, begging them in effect to consider Ivermectin as a valid alternative. And I've done a video about that and the details can be found. But in a nutshell, the Irish authorities utterly and totally missed that excellent advice, pro bono advice, I hasten to add, that they were getting from and colleagues in another country who were trying to do the best for the Irish healthcare system. And that was utterly, totally, completely ignored, dismissed without any explanation, without any futile or rebuttal of reviewed articles that the bird group to the Irish uh, group to encourage them to use ivermectin. That just did not happen. And because of that, I mean, I view that again, something that needs to be inquired into and that borders on the criminal. I mean, it is the, it behoves any medical doctor to suppress valid information. You've got to take everything into the pot to try to decide which is the best forward. That's the way medicine operates. And would it be fair to say that ivermectin, had it been allowed used, could have saved millions of lives across Europe and the world? It would have saved lives, absolutely. It would have saved lives. I mean, for example, in the intensive care departments, it could have saved lives. Proposed, it was totally ignored. Proposed running a clinical control trial. I mean, it would easily get past the committee, say in two hospitals, say for similar, say Waterford and Galway, for example something like that um, one group would get ivermectin the intensive care and others wouldn't just and the others in the other group wouldn't just to see compare and contrast and see is there significant a statistical significance uh, between the two groups I'm confident there would be but nothing I mean that's the easiest easiest trial to run it will be done and done in under two weeks in fact the trial will have to be suspended midway the results will become so obvious and you'd be really obliged to do so. But the ethics committee of both hospitals would have had no difficulty in running with that one, but it was never ever done. So there was an there was a complete blackout on all things ivermectin and the other remedies and therapies as well. All 
eggs were in one basket and that basket vaccine basket with the full acknowledgement two things, that it was an experimental vaccine because I hadn't gone the full distance of testing. And second, and this is bizarre, the vaccine companies were themselves immunized against litigation. They were protected from being sued. It's the taxpayer that the bill, not the company. So that carte blanche for the company to push, push, as any salesman would selling shoes or if you're selling vaccine, you're going to push it out as much as you can where your loyalty is to your shareholder. It's an economic certainty, but it's a scandal. And on that ivermectin point, not only was it ignored, it seemed it was also, um, I, I know off the mainstream media, for example, Joe Rogan had made this quite famous that he took ivermectin and feel great after it. And the CDC said, stop taking horse dewormer. So it's like a deliberate attempt to shut down the, the avenue of ivermectin. Um, and I know... To like, diminish, to diminish To diminish it. Yeah, so not even advice ignored. It, yeah. Um, and like, it's strange that even the Irish Medical Council never even... Like, is, is it out of character that the Irish Medical Council has denied the debate regarding the, the you know, effectiveness of vaccines, masks, mandates? Of course, mandates? it's utterly out of It's never happened before. It's never happened before. It's totally out of it's not their role. Their role is to operate the 1978 Medical Petitioners Act, where you investigate individual doctors who are believed to be a debt to society. They have considered that the doctors who have spoken out in favour of alternative, and I don't like using the word, we now have a on the goals of the 1970s, they're very, very mainstream and wonderful, wonderful preparation in very many other areas as well. But I mean, any doctor that permits that is in trouble. And I think because in doing so, you're in fact saying that you use emergency use medicine, if you like. In other words, the, what is described vaccines that you could use ivermectin. Now, there are contrast in certain other parts of the world. Take uh, parts of India, take the state of Pradesh, population 280 million people. They've used it successfully. Uh, take the state of Rajasthan, I think, in India again. It used it as something like 100 million people, and it used it uh, parts of Brazil, parts of Japan. I mean, it's it's been widely used here and there. It's much more use used now than it had been at the beginning, but eventually, so been shown. And you know, there are virtually no side effects with ivermectin. You said that there are side effects with every life, but the side effects tend very, very minor compared to what we now know about the vaccines. And on top of that, it's prophylactic. It would allow hospital staff from getting ill. They could be where they want to be and where they would be at their workstation at the time when they were most needed. Is there something very sinister about making children breathe in their own carbon dioxide for seven hours, ask people to show their papers before entering premises, isolating elderly in their homes? You know, what are their human rights? You know, it seems as though to hold off such a, an important cure, if that is possible, and to roll out these things seems bizarre. It, like the layman was able to see that a lot of this was completely against common sense and cruel. Correct. And you touched there on the subject of masks and children. I mean, I remember... Norma Foley, the Minister of Education. I mean, she in effect stated, as she in fairness, she did withdraw her remark after, after 24 hours, but she said that children should not be given admission to school unless they were prepared to wear a mask. Now, that's denying children their constitutional right. 
I had the privilege to speak to several thousand people in Merrion Square the next day about that. And in fairness, she wrote back. But I may say so in an ungracious way. I'm, you, they were forced to do so. You can't deny people are constitutional right. I mean, children shiver in cold classrooms wearing masks. What about the teachers themselves, their workspace? I mean, it, it's difficult, difficult for them. But the whole lot down of society has caused enormous damage. For example, in an area there I have a certain element of expertise in the area of cancer. Uh, the Irish College uh, of GPs pointed out what are called e-referrals. In other words, an electronic referral to a hospital, to a consultant. There was something like a 72% increase in e-referrals of pigmented skin lesions. In other words, if a person had a lesion, be a melanoma type of skin cancer, quite rapid and kind of a poor outcome of the cases. Uh, there's something like a 2% decrease in referrals. So there's a 2% decrease in breast cancer referrals, 50% give or in prostates. Bowel cancer is is as stopped being by about 50% as well. Now, those numbers have caught up since then. The damage is done. I mean, I had a person that tried to get somebody a dermatology appointment for a mole recently, and it's just impossible. He certainly certain county in Connacht up and down tried to find a GP, failed to find a GP and I had no choice but to refer him into a cash for examination which is not what cash is all for so it is it's enormously difficult sort of on GPs trying to play catch up doubly difficult on patients that might be brewing something I mean it's health the, the most of us, many of us are in some sort of a knife edge, we're lucky we never find out but if it's a skin cancer, it might just be, you know, that particular person. If it's something else, like a heart coming up or whatever, it's 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 similar. So the whole medical system is behind. And you're working on top of a system that is creaking, a system that on snapshot view a few days ago, and I did about this as well and bit you, there were 629 people trolleys, of which scandalously about 28 or 29 were children. Now, that's a system medicine that is falling asunder. That's a system that simply is functioning, delays in coming and getting diagnosis. Your outcomes are much, much worse when it is delayed. So in other words, we're a system in meltdown. I mean, use no other word to describe it. It's a system that in effect has ceased to function the way in, in a modern, you know, 21st century wealthy democracy. You should not have this, this. And then we have vast numbers of other people coming to our country, totally swamping our system and our educational system. There is an awful lot wrong, an awful lot rotten, an awful lot of terminal decay within many systems in this country. And a, a total rewrite, a total new solution is needed in completely new people. I mean, all political parties as I can see it, government plus what I describe as fake opposition parties have completely killed us. They're all in it together. And it's the public, you and me, suffer as a result of the dangerous, bizarre things that they make. But it seems that there's a certain percentage of the population who are completely unaware of a lot of these things, who have been very compliant Bizarrely compliant. Mm. I, I can only put it down to maybe the fear that the media produced in in the coronavirus initially. Um, but the compliance level, like I've had people, 
I make no bones about it. I didn't take any vaccines. And the reason I didn't, I was all for it when I heard about the virus in the beginning. But then I, I seen um, a friend, Dr. Anne McCluskey up the north, speak out about people coming with complications. And then she got suspended and then removed from social media. And I thought that was very odd. And then I seen that happen internationally before it came my time for it. And I said, oh, you know, I'm going to hold off on this and see what's going on here. And, you know, even I thought the way they roll out certain things in Ireland here was very wrong. I, was, I wanted to put five five statements to you that are common misconceptions. Mm. Or maybe you can put them right, true or false, and we can comment on them afterwards. So, number one, okay. if I had broke my leg and tested positive while in hospital, I was counted as a COVID hospital admission in the statistics. Of Would that have been true? Right. Yes, that's correct. Whether or you were whether or not you were aware you were COVID, whether or not you had any clinical signs you had COVID, you were you were a COVID case, not a broken leg case. I mean, this is ridiculous. Number two, if I died in hospital due to cancer, but a tested positive a few days prior, was I counted as a COVID death in the statistics? Yes, you'd be a COVID. That's right, and that's what the two coroner and and Mayo point out that each of them had 300 deaths over the course of the previous year and they reviewed those and of those in both cases 297 or 298 people were terminally ill with other illnesses advanced dementia advanced cancers and but they were recorded as the deaths number three if i had taken a pcr test and the result was positive did i certainly have covid19 but you certainly were recorded a COVID case. In fact, if you like, the definition of a COVID case was a or positive person, whether they had it or they didn't have it, whether they had clinical signs or didn't have clinical signs. When people come to me, as a, the first thing I want to know is how you're feeling, what's wrong with you? And if you mm -hmm. say, well, I'm great and there's nothing wrong with me, normally that would be the end of the conversation. So... of COVID was a positive CR test. So yeah, it just lagged there in the last 30 seconds. Um, you just mentioned something about the PCR test. Let me just check. Oh. Hmm. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Hello. Hello. How are we, how are we doing? Can you see me? Can you hear me? Uh, yeah. Sorry about that. Oh, we're back again. We're back again. Yeah. Apologies for that. Yeah, that's uh, I can hear you. I don't know if it's my Wi-Fi, but I'm here in the basement. So. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, whatever we spoke about got recorded so far. <laughs> um, but look, it, no, no, yes. but I was just saying again that a COVID case is somebody who is PCR positive. I mean, that's utterly ridiculous. A person may clinically be completely well, may have no pose, no risk to anybody else, but yet are positive. Yes. And number four, if I had recently received my vaccine and booster, but missed my last booster appointment and admitted to hospital for any reason, was it counted as an unvaccinated hospital admission? I'm not sure about that. I think you would be, yes, because the schedule that you were meant to adhere to 
that ad adherence didn't occur. Presumption. In this case, the current. Yes. And of course, the same if you didn't have your booster or whatever, getting on flight or whatever, you had to have, um, well, either a PCR negative test, but you also your vaccines had to be up to date to board. So it's safe to say that statistics were, um, were greatly exaggerated. Well, I think they were. It depends what you're counting up. I mean, if you're counting up number of PCR tests, you can easily count up number. But if you're talking about the number of people with medical illness, that wasn't really recorded. I mean, hospital admissions were recorded, but again, they were recorded just as people who might have tested positive upon arrival in hospital. So in other words, a person might go in with their appendix and a person might be suddenly that they're COVID positive when for their appendix and therefore they're listed as a COVID case. Now, I mean, I had one bizarre case where somebody actually sort of an appendix issue and they arrived in one of the Dublin hospitals and they were found to be, let me get this right, they were found to be negative, but they were, so they were admitted in, had their surgery. They were going to go over to the private hospital because of cover they had VHI, but although it's on the same campus, it's a hospital, so they were tested again time round or other unlucky they came up so they couldn't go into the other hospital they had to stay where they were they had to be put in a covid ward where half the people were coughing and speaking where you'd surely get it you know if there was somebody there and she was with absolutely no sign of it she was absolutely terrified she discharged herself after two days stitches and everything and she's entitled to get out and got them out and the outpatient but i mean it was utterly outrageous she was treated and all because not because of anything clinical because of testing have you had sight of the recent documentary that died suddenly i've heard of it and people have generously sent it on to me like a lot of things it's just a matter of trying to find the time to actually look at it but i'm very much aware there's a huge increase in some deaths and you know it's a matter of how you how you get the statistics going here i mean a person can die of say myocarditis but if they didn't if they were vaccinated more than i think it's 30 days prior it wouldn't it did it's reason to statistically connect them there is no mechanism to hook the two bits of information together so it's quite a difficult so that's been played out and i want to be very sensitive in what i say because i'm very conscious there are bereaved families involved but a case and again in front of uh, patrick o'connor the mayo uh, coroner concerning a young 14 year old boy and i mean again stated both by the coroner by the solicitor representing deceased and his family, something to the effect that this is a matter of urgent public health concern. Now, I couldn't agree more. And that's just a normal statement. But again, things like that by coroners or by doctors, they don't detraction the they deserve. Again, there is a single narrative, a single way of writing it up. There's a complete suppression of facts. And it's very 
difficult. It's very difficult on families as well because see if a young person dies, I mean, with that enormous tragedy, it's going to sort of the last thing anybody wants perhaps is a campaign built around them or anything like that. But however, these deaths have to be investigated by the coroner and because of that, they do enter into the public domain. But again, the reporting is enormously scarce, scarce on it. Again, it boils down to the fact that we don't have a reputable inquisitive curious public uh, b- b- pri- uh, media media or television wireless or or uh, newspaper print to actually give a, a range of points of view i mean that used to be the way i mean it is absolutely uh, ridiculous the way it is now at a personal level i've totally given up reading the news there's absolutely no point and i remember growing a child and in the irish times and around as we all, you got around and read, looked at and passed it around and all of that, and you could re- rely on, on, on the news in it. <laughs> but nowadays, you just can't, you know. I would draw an exception to the rule, perhaps. And again, uh, I just sort of went and I saw the Telegraph newspaper, UK newspaper, but in fairness, they seem to, um, they seem to speak sort of in a more sort of competent way and in a more sort of bracing way than many of the Irish newspapers do and also the British Medical Journal and this is very important this was the premier journal for medical doctors in the world peer-reviewed articles there's a debate within the medical in the British Medical Journal on a range of points of view with scholarly art that are peer-reviewed but none of that debate enters into Irish medical community and normally it would i mean doctors read the british medical journal and other journals as well just to keep up to date you kind of have to do that but um now um if you discuss a lot of the peer-reviewed articles you get into serious trouble and doctors for the most part are tired or worn out they're defeated they're overworked and they are compliant and i am it's not active i am ashamed of that fact I wanted to ask you, like, if they showed a lot of blood clotting and um, the coroner's reports from that documentary, um, and it was suggested that the vaccines are doing a lot more harm than they are good. Is that too sensitive a topic to comment on? Well, I mean, yeah, of course, I'd love to comment on that. I'm anything in life. There's a risk benefit analysis. I mean, when you cross the road, you're technically taking a risk. You to the right, you look to the left and you make the decision to cut to go across it and um, you'll arrive on the other side. And it applies with any form of medicine. There ought to be a risk-benefit analysis as well. The prediction is that the benefit will exceed risk. Now, we know the risk for young people dying of COVID, for example, or getting seriously ill with COVID, something like 0.02%. It's, it's incredibly low. The absence of having a serious... Uh, um, a risk factor such as cystic fibrosis or whatever else might be. Um, in the absence of all of that, for the ordinary young, robust teenager, the chances of them getting any adverse effect out of COVID or any other form of infectious disease commonly found in Ireland, with the exception maybe of meningitis, is tends to be very remote, that there's going to be any problem there. So therefore, risk benefit why take a risk if there's an, is no better at the other end of life it's a very different scenario where people must be kept sort of perhaps cooned to some extent or perhaps kept away from infectious disease as the common flu or anything else as well but the problem with, uh i suppose the whole 
thing is, and the vaccine associated with it, is that it nowhere's that risk does exceed method. And some countries have refined their vaccination schedule to take account of that and have more or less excluded younger people from um, the regime from the vaccination that would not have been so, you know, a number of months previously, everybody was recommended that they have it. In Ireland, uh, we've not done that. Um, again, there's this one push in one direction as an unhealthy thing to do. But the numbers, unfortunately, I mean, stack up and there's going to be more pathology, more risk, and dare I say it, more deaths than from COVID. It, it's 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 very, very scandalous. I want to ask you a quick question. I know you're strapped for time. I am. Um, what of the WEF involvement? Um, a lot of people now are saying maybe it's conspiracy theory, but you know, you hear with these digital IDs, they want for travel, international travel, cashless society, mm-hmm. and they also want a depopulation of society. And the fact that the health advice mm-hmm. has not only been ignored but completely uh, done a U-turn on. Seems like more and more that this is something that is behind the scenes. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, certainly individual people have sort of expressed bizarre comments about the world being overpopped and things like that. I mean, take example, an offshoot of all of this. I mean, with globalism here, for example, the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization is, I suppose, a shoot at the UN, and maybe they all feed in in some way or other or influenced by the World Economic Forum. But the World Health Organization now are making a globalist grab on our health. They are have bringing forth a pandemic treaty. They expect countries to sign that treaty. Ireland has said we will sign that treaty, even if they haven't actually the wording the treaty it hasn't been published yet but despite that we have said that we are going to sign that treaty that treaty allows the who to decide what a pandemic is it allows the who to decide how to treat the pandemic whatever the pandemic is what they give and what treatments to hold so for example all local experts will be completely and totally bypassed. If the World Health Organization were to decide swine flu or COVID or ordinary flu is a pandemic, they'll decide that that is the pandemic. They will decide how to treat it. But they also define a pandemic ways. You can have a pandemic of obesity. You can have a pandemic of cancer. You can have a pandemic of many, many other things. And the WE World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, which is an offshoot, of it. I mean, they're deciding what a pandemic is. If we sign this World Health Organization pandemic treaty, which we said we will sign, our politicians, our political leaders have said they will sign, even though they haven't actually read what, what the treaty is about, they're told what it is about. We are particularly in this country over enthusiastic about the treaty because not only have we said we'll sign it, we're a member of a small number of other nations who are described as friends of the treaty. Can you imagine? We haven't, it hasn't even been published, but it does mean that WHO will decide what a pandemic is. They will decide, and the new pandemic up with all things associated with climate. Their point of view, let's make no mistake about that. And then they will decide how to treat it uh, to the exclusion of other treatments. They alone will decide. Our own experts won't be consulted. So, for example, they might decide that Chinese style lockdowns might be the way forward, masks wearing, vaccination, whatever might be the way forward, and we have no say whatsoever. And not that the WHO is pushing 
that treat that countries that then suddenly say, well, we do our own thing in this particular set of circumstances will be financially penalised for doing so. Let's be clear about this. The WHO used to be funded by nation states, each giving according to their means. And they did a good job for the most part out in places like Africa and Asia. They developed world, underdeveloped world, doing sort of getting rid of malaria or whatever. They were not involved in uh, the Western world until just before COVID. And the reason for that is private funding is entering into the situation and for example, the biggest contributor is me as a country, but that is followed by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And after that comes the United States. So while I don't have the figures in front of me here, I think West Germany, I think Germany gives something like 1.2 billion and the Bill and Melinda Gates give about 780 million and the United States about 680 million. We give, of course, much less than that. And... Um, in other words, once you get private funding, the Rockefeller Foundation and Soros, a range of other people to a greater or lesser extent have contributed over the last number of years as well. So private funding, very major way forward with WHO. So that has completely and completely changed our focus from the developing world to the developed world. So they now want a pandemic response treaty where they will decide what a pandemic is. They will decide how to treat it and they will decide above all, how not to treat it. We'll have total control. So in effect, surrendering our health sovereignty. And that's one major aspect because sovereignty isn't only about health, as we now know. It's about travel. It's about international travel. It's about a range of other things, even leaving your own home, for example. I mean, there was a time when we brought down within our immediate districts by two kilometres or something like that. They may very well decide that. Look what's happening in China, for example. You may say, well, that's rendered the world, yes, but if there's a treaty in place, what happens there happens here, and there is no discussion, least of all with our own expert. So if we sign up to this, we're locked in to yet another globalist treaty that we're going difficulty getting out of without serious penalty. And our government and the fake opposition parties, they're all on the same hymn sheet here, believe we should sign up to this treaty. In effect, I mean, we have enough expertise in Ireland. We know our local situation. We've the youngest mostly populated country in Europe, as best as I know. Compare us with the Netherlands, for example, where they're on top of each other and there's an older, an older society. You cannot say one fits all. Public health and communicable diseases depend upon geographical spread, age, demographics, all of these things. And the WHO will ignore that to have a one-size-fits-all philosophy. And it's a philosophy not based on health. It's a philosophy based on politics. That the WHO is a political organisation where its president general is promoted by different countries. In this particular case, he's promoted by China. And not only that, his own parliament, as I've often said, has described him as a terrorist. The Global Index on Terrorism has described him as a terrorist. The man's not fit for office. The man should not be in charge of the WHO. The man jail. You spoke there about, about personal sovereignty. And I want to bring you back to Ireland for a moment. Um, mm. What do you think the real motivation behind this new proposed hate speech bill is? Is it a front to present oh, as though it's a rigorous debate? Right? Absolutely. It seems like a front. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still an utterly debate. Yeah, uh, but it's actually it's a human asking. rights issue. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I mean, it's, it's, it's an 
outrageous attempt to stifle the de- I mean debate is the bedrock of society, the bedrock of democracy. Democracy depends upon debate, it depends upon people, but I stress in a respectful and dignified way communicating with each other. Of you do that. I mean, if a person verbally assaults somebody or whatever, that that's outrageous and that should not happen. Of course not. But to be able to discuss and a wide range of normal, ordinary issues certainly concerns various sort of social issues that sort of this country has has sort of obsessed on over the last number of years. I mean, these are things that that need debate, need discussion, need openness, need transparency. And if you shut down debate, it in fact creates, and this is another problem, it creates a two-speed system, those with protected characteristics and are those who are not. There are people who are more equal or less equal than the law. I believe everybody should be equal before the law. With that comes a responsibility to be, for example, respectful to another person's opinion. Absolutely. I mean, that, that also is, I mean, to get good manners amongst other things. But to be able to sort of shut down debate and to say somebody is offended as a result of a, what a person might say, and because of that, that to be described as hate speech. And I don't even like the use of the word hate speech. On a personal level, I there is a hateful bone in my body. But yet uh, it appears that uh, is promoting hate speech by defending free speech. Utterly different, different, different things. A good example of that might be what befallen a certain teacher in, in currently in Mount Joy Jail. We all know that particular set of circumstances where he because of his conscience, as far as I understand it, and I don't know the full set of circumstances here, I hasten to add, because of his conscience, he chose not to address a young person by certain pronouns because he offended against his conscience, and he chose not to. Out of the net effect is he's in because of that. Now, you could well say he's in because of breach of a court order, but the technicality, that's the fig leaf. Let's talk, we live in the real world. Let's talk about the reality of the situation. The reality is that he is there because he chose not to use pronoun they. And that is a typical example of how we can fall into the pit of free speech denial when it gets, when these, these laws come in, it's going much, much worse and will criminalize points of view. That's all points of view. You can be in you can be prosecuted for up to five years in prison, not because of what you do, but because of what you say. And that is kind of outrageous assault on speech. Um, it's an attempt to, I suppose, by government listening to various NGOs uh, who have dominated media and who've dominated and therefore dominated government because government obviously wants the approval of media and what have you got? You have people who have been listened to and you have large numbers of people, I believe the majority of Irish people, who are not being listened to. So this is an example of something that will slip through. It doesn't require a referendum, unfortunately. It will simply slip through Parliament unless it is vigorously opposed. And um, I'm pessimistic about the whole thing, but we'll give it our best shot. And on on this coming Saturday, as many of us know, there will be a free speech rally in O'Connell Street, Dublin, 1pm, and I would invite absolutely everybody to come to it. It's very important. It's not only for yourself, it's for future generations as well, where we're able to express ourselves. I mean, simple things, for example. I mean, if a person, say, 
um, had a point of view and simply expressed it. And if somebody found it to be offensive, they may very well uh, they may very well have you reported. What, for example, two doctors were discussing something, and if they formed the opinion that person, a patient, has to be a man by the very virtue of the fact that he possesses a Y chromosome and therefore in a biological sense is a man and therefore is a man or in the absence of a Y chromosome is female, for example. Is there a possibility that hate speech could be put into play there? What about the clergyman that occupies his pulpit on Sunday and he may very well speak something from the scriptures concerning man and woman? In that case, is there an element of hate speech? What about the Irish constitution? For example, not the constitution, the proclamation about the ownership of the island of Ireland by the people of, of Ireland. And how do you define that? Ireland, not only free, but Gaelic. Not only Gaelic, but free. In other words, the Gaelic people that own the island of Ireland. Is that not? Could you not say that there's an element of hate speech there? Things can be picked through. And when you bring in an act parliament. You never know how it's going to play out. And it's played out in the courts obviously, the courts that interpret acts of power. I mean, you know that more than most. And therefore, you're in a situation where you're on very dangerous ground, dangerous territory, because you can't predict final outcomes here. And I would be very, very wary about this imposition on our normal, ordinary freedoms, which are the bedrock of democracy. Democracy Depends upon opinion, depends upon free speech, depends upon the exchange of ideas, and depends upon a flexibility of mind that allows you to change those ideas necessary and at all times, as I all say, expressed in a dignified and responsible way. Yeah, absolutely. Because even it's this incitement word as well. Like, you know, who's to know that our conversation right now, talking about the vaccinated and unvaccinated, couldn't be incitement in, in someone else's mind in the future you know it, it compels common law speech which i know canada did and it was a disaster um but i want to actually get because you touched on it there right. and i know you're passionate about this uh, can you elaborate what's happening in the country regarding the immigration issue and what's the risks that can amount to well there's there there, there are a massive risk i mean first of all there's there's risk to our services i mean at a basic level if, if there's the basic economic supply and demand i mean for housing for example take young people take rents take take purchase houses i mean there is a vast short that always was a problem in the on in the not too you know last 20 years probably with the whole area of the house market uh, compared to many european countries our prices are completely in but having said all that, um, when you throw other people into the mix, you have a for, you have a massive problem because you have competition for limiting resources. Now, what I really sort of uh, the difficulty with is we have eleven thousand homeless people in Ireland, and that an underestimate because that underestimates those people are living in other people's and the people approaching middle age living still with their parents and there's that sort of overshoot of that very basic 11,000 people nothing, nothing, nothing for those there have been no sense of emergence no sense of help and yet when people are coming from abroad talking about um, modular homes homes as I said are very, very fit for purpose homes that are very good homes that a person can live in in a comfortable 
way, but our but ourselves cannot apply for them. We are denied them. There is no there's a two speed system. We're put bottom of the heap by our own people our own country and that is utterly totally wrong but quite apart from that if you bring people from other countries especially international protection people from part Africa or the Middle East into Ireland I mean people whose culture is completely different than ours whose way of life is completely different than ours quite apart from the whole concept of fit in there's a concept of 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 um, I suppose social disorder, social chaos that can arise from. We want to avoid this in our, in our country. I mean, for hundreds and hundreds of years, we fought hard to form this country, create this country, govern this country, make it our country in precisely the same way the French have done to France, the Spanish have done to Spain, the Czechs done to check so on and so forth there's nothing unusual about that we like as we like a country that has been fought for that has nourished us that has brought us up and that we are loyal to to have it in effect taken away from us i feel very very passionate about that so it's not only a matter of resources resources for housing resources for health resources for education and all the fact that uh, these things cannot, in fact, denied to us now because overwhelming numbers of people that we can't take on board. There's also the whole philosophical concept of what sort of a nation do we want? What sort of a nation do we want? For example, we saw this week and last week in Carlingford, for example, a large number of people about whom we know nothing except nobody's been vetted put into the village. We've seen that in East as well. The question to be asked is, course in five years time or in 10 years time what sort of a town you want each young male coming no doubt will have a family coming in in a few weeks or a few months time so you will very very rapidly have as have a very multicultural system that will not necessarily function very well a small country, we're a small nation, we're a small people. If people come to Ireland, my personal belief is it should be a right of return for all Irish people who are in our diaspora abroad. And those are the people that we should be seeking and we should be asked to come home. And I don't just mean people who might have left in our generation or a previous generation to us and they're not too in the past. I'm talking about people that might have left many, many centuries even before that. People who consider themselves to be Irish, people who went during the famine, people who worked with the persecutions before that, but indeed the Irish armies that left the wild geese after the second uh, siege of Limerick. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they too are Irish. They too are equally Irish to me. They too should have an automatic right of return to our country. Those are the people, talented, vibrant, genetically linked to our land. Those are the people that we should be inviting back, not giving a free path to the rest of the world. But having said that, I'm utterly and totally in favour of giving accommodation, giving giving um, protection to genuine refugees from genuine wars in parts of countries that affected by war. So, for example, people in war zones in eastern Ukraine are very welcome as far as I am concerned. Those small numbers of genuine refugees who will come, seek protection and go back again to rebuild their lives. They're genuine refugees. 
We did that with the Hungarians in the 1956. We did that uh, to the Kosovans way back about 20 years ago. Farmers that came in this country where our farms were destroyed, sent a number of months and they went back to re get their, their sort of businesses up and running again. That was a success story, and that's what we should concentrate on. But instead, instead, we seem to be giving a free pass to the rest of the world to come to Ireland with the deliberate aim of diluting Irish people, the Irish nation, and in effect creating a forced upon us multicultural society that once we do it, we can't unravel it. That's the difficulty, a very difficult thing to unravel when you when you do that. And I believe it would be disastrous to Irish culture, Irish tradition, the Irish way of life, our Christian heritage, and a whole range of other things that make us unique and distinctly Irish. Now, upon the Ukraine, for example, I mean, this is another example of government in chaos, a government following the leader following the crowd, pandering to Europe, our one great skill in this country negotiation, our one great skill is the ability to bring people together, especially regarding border disputes. And no country in Europe should know more about border disputes than this country. And we have the very skills and the attitude and a relaxed mood, if you like, to bring opposite sides together, hammer out a deal, for want of a better word. And yet, we have in effect declared economic war and almost political war on Russia. Uh, we have taken sides. We may well sort of say that one side's better than the other side. If you wish, people will have private points of view on that. I'm not so sure. But having said that, to actually go with the flow with the rest of Europe or a lot of Europe and to in effect declare economic war on one side and then whinge when our prices of electricity and our prices of gas and everything else goes up is ridiculous. We should have stood aside. We should have thought about our neutrality, our sovereignty. We should have said, how can we help this situation? What can we do? What are our skills? I read there that the Irish troops now will be training, participating in training um, uh, Ukrainian soldiers. There's no need for that. They're not going to make much impact anyway, that's sure. But uh, it sends a signal. And Russian uh, Prime Minister, Russian Russian ambassador in Ireland, His Excellency Filatov, I think, did state that in his sort of point of view, in an interview with his government, that in effect virtually declares military war on Russia. I mean, do we not know the falls that we're walking into? Can we not see the abyss that could be staring us in the face. We need to back from the brink at this late stage, recognise our sovereign, and above all, call those who have betrayed that sovereignty to account. Our government and our fake opposition. These are the people who have taken sides. There was the ridiculous example there a few weeks ago in Dublin. There was a march, and the march was calling for Irish sovereignty or for Irish neutrality. And it was led by the predictable people against Prophet and Sinn Féin and all. And the way they started was, we quickly support the Ukraine, and by the way, we're neutral. 
I mean, you cannot, you cannot have that attitude. You're either neutral or you're not neutral. And if you're true, you offer your neutral skills to try to bring about resolution to the conflict. So, I mean, we, we are poorly served by politicians. We're poorly served, be they in government, be they in fake opposition. My concern is that as a small nation on the periphery of Europe with a vast Atlantic Ocean and a vast Atlantic coastline, we are we are vulnerable in cases of any conflict. And we were unaware of that. I mean, I will say no hesitation in saying that if there was nuclear conflict that broke out, both Shannon and Dublin airports would be the first, would be one of the first places hit. Because it'd have to be, because the runways are over 10,000 feet long. And people aren't told those simple facts. And you know what? In the Great War in the 1914-1918, nobody expected it to develop into the conflict it developed. There was an obscure incident involving an assassination in Sarajevo. It took three months later after that before the world descended into World War. In the Second World War, there was a dispute over the free city of Danzig. There you had a situation where a population, a German-speaking city, wanted to be part of Germany and the League of Nations knew and it, it escalated. And nobody, nobody thought a world war would arise out of a city called Danzig in East Germany or in, in, in where was it, in, in Western Poland. It then became part of, part of Gdansk. But the point I'm making really is we slip walk into conflicts. The longer this lasting, the greater the possibility of calamity, the great possibility of a missile going astray. And that happened two weeks ago. And um, the greater the possibility of, of, of retaliation. So if we are seeing people who have taken sides, we are part of that conflict and we cannot say otherwise. So it's essential at this late age for our politicians to be called to account on this when they are gambling with our lives. And not only that, Zelensky in the Ukraine is gambling with the lives of Europe. I never met a person, a minister, I never heard of a prime minister so belligerent when it comes to trying to involve NATO so determined to turn the conflict into a European conflict rather than local border dispute that in effect it is involving a Russian minority trapped behind Ukrainian a Ukrainian frontier want to incorporate into Russia. Why can't this country organise or suggest a referendum with the people that could be internationally supervised in that area. That's all it takes. And if that referendum is respected, you simply rebuild the border. Imagine if our own border commission in 1924 was respected, we would have a very, very different uh, drawing of the border in on the island of Ireland. Um, but we don't do that because we've taken sides to be the good boys of Europe, to get the good pat on the head from whoever our leadership our political leadership have sold sovereignty out. We're coming towards the end of our chat here, but I, I just wanted to make a few points. You know, as a as a Christian with three young children, you know, it, it almost seems like biblical times you're living in because you have these wars, you have these, you know, falling of birth rates and increasing the death rates, you know. And these reports that when I come out, they, they make me make me angry. They make me almost vengeful also, you know, and I'm just speaking as the layman walking around, you know, when I've seen locally young faces who've come and gone in the last month only, multiple of them, 
and they don't know what happened. You know, it's not chalked down to anything. And people have said, you know, you need to distract yourself from other things. You know, you're getting too worked about, up about these matters. But I don't know about that mm. because I think that if I distract yourself, you know, it, it's not product, it's not productive. It, there's no motivation to go out and march like we should be right. doing, you know, taking to the streets. Like, you know, every right. week more children are lined up to take this vaccine. And there is evidence that it could <laughs> well be harmful. So, you know... What's, mm-hmm. you know, the idea, my idea is that we're not to be silent. And I know there is a member of the population, but there's this divide and conquer thing that happened, I think, when people took the vaccine and didn't, they argued about it in the beginning, and now they don't want to hear about the evidence towards it. And it's bizarre to me because, you know, there's lives at stake here. This seems to me like a hill to die on. What's your opinion on it? Well, what I, what I would say is, I mean, it's very, very simple. I mean, each of us have our own responsibility. And I mean, for those of us who are awake, we have a responsibility to wake up others. There is a, this is a fight. This is a fight to the finish. There's no doubt about that. And I like your your, your sort of analogy that is of biblical notions, because, of course, it certainly is. I mean, I personally, at a personal level, I think there's a spiritual dimension to this, make a mistake about this. But again, um, I'm prepared to say that for those of us who are awake, for those of us who are aware of the situation, it, it behoves us. We have a responsibility, I use the word a Christian responsibility, to go out and to wake up others and to be loud and heard and be involved. Not to be involved is compliant, is being complete in what is going on. And for those of us who have a and you get out there we need to get out we need to spread the message we need to participate in what is happening we need to aim to hold government and fake opposition to account we need to have them replaced we need a new system we need to build up something new and something powerful that's only going to come from the grassroots only going to come from the people involved with so many other people in hold the line and the line is a marvellous organisation, sovereign people who stand on routes and motorways and bridges and train stations and promenades throughout all of Ireland with the yellow and black boards, waking people up, challenging the government, calling them to account, pointing out the fitness of opposition and concentrating on major issues that are central to the survival of our nation and of our people. And because of that, the free speech rally is a good example of that occurring on the 3rd of December, this coming Saturday in O'Connell's in Dublin. We need to start there because if you can't say it, if you can't play a yellow and black board calling the government to account for fear of getting five years in jail, and this is this they want the government, they want great fear they want to make people fearful because if you're fearful you will be less active you will give it over the baton over to somebody else and that person will pass on to yet somebody else there is a need for each every one of us to stand together as we're bound together in this great fight in this great a great endeavour to save this nation from destruction. And I stress, we're on the brink of that. So there's a need for people to get out and for people to be visible, be seen, use our talents, and above all, put our arms around this nation and our traditions, our culture, our Christian heritage, stand firm and say no to those who want to betray us, destroy us, demolish us, get rid of us, if you like, and um, walk all over. And I say no, no, no to that. 
And that's well said. And I, I want to just end this interview by saying that on behalf of the Irish people who feel censored, silenced and discriminated against, we we appreciate it very much, your stance. I know um, you probably have to make a massive sacrifice in your field and by reputation tarnishing by stepping forward. And it is appreciated, um, as well as the people from Hold the Line who stand up every weekend in the hail and rain and wind and hold up their banners. So I want to say thank you to yourself and thank you to them also. Thank you very much. Very much appreciated. And thank you for having me on this podcast this evening. Appreciate that. And I will see you out there. Dishonesty, and that deeply concerns me.